Today on a massively tardy week in sports cars with our dear friend Graham Goodwin. We have many thanks to you for your patience while I have been dealing with some very not fun uh, health-related items. I am fine, will be fine, take another week to 10 days to be totally good. It's not COVID, thankfully, but uh, some not happy pain and, yeah, stuff, bad Nonetheless, we're late. We're very late. We're, yes, and we appreciate your patience, appreciate your questions that you've sent in, and we keep stacking them, and we're going to get to as many as we can here in a moment. Graham, we'll say thank you, as always, to open the show to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Going to open with two quick things. One... Tell us where you are, Graham Goodwin. And then two, yes. tell us which category we're going to start with, because I, I feels like someone's nearly on the rev limiter there uh, across the good old uh, tele-internets line. Right. So there's two things. Number one, I'm uh, just outside Portimao in Portugal for the season finale for the uh, the European Le Mans series. It's uh, really reasonably late in the evening. We just come home from the uh, track, a little house we're staying just on the coast away from there. Um, before we get into the questions, I've got one question we will add uh, to this evening. It comes from a Oscar the dog, and he's had correspondence himself, and he says, uh, Marshall, there have been many rumours um, about your absence. Was it drink-related, drug-related, drink and drug-related, or something else? Well, Oscar will understand this reasoning. It's actually neither. Sniffing too ah. many behinds. I sniffed the wrong one. So it's, it's, it's all about the sniffs. Yes, exactly. It's all about the sniffs. You sniff the wrong one, and it's with you forever. I've I'm got afraid. the cone over my head right now, too. So uh, I've been <laughs> oh. a bad boy. Bad, bad boy. Well, the cone of shame leads us neatly into, uh, we'll start, I think, with Wekaslam's Elms Akko, our ACO rules racing category. Now, this is the one, Marshall, where you become the interrogator. I am the uh, vomiteur of questions in your direction. We're going to start with Daniel <laughs> Summersgill, yeah, the first of his 27 Two. questions. Thank you, Daniel. We appreciate your curiosity says, with inter-Europol competitions announcement, uh, they'll be running an Areca in WEC next season, and uh, Setilar racing unlikely to be back. Are we looking at an Areca-only LMP2 season, noting that Setilar was running the Lone Delara? And what do you think can be done, Graham, to remove this dreaded chassis domination when we get to the next set of regulations in LMP2? Excellent question from Daniel, as we're used to. Let's start with Settler. Settler have told me they expect to be back in WEC, but probably in GTM with a Ferrari. Oddly enough, bumped into Roberto Lacorte earlier today here at Portimao. He's here with his son, uh, who is at the adjacent karting circuit uh, training, um, uh, alongside the son of ex-Formula 1 driver Luca Badoa, uh, who is also here uh, today. As for Inter-Europol, correct, they'd be, uh, they're expecting delivery pretty imminently of their single Orica chassis. Uh, they expect uh, that car to be ready for testing by the end of the year. And, of course, then looking forward to the program that they have set for that. There will be more details of what that program will involve in the coming days and weeks. Uh, beyond that, we also expect them 
likely to be looking to see whether or not they can get an LMP2 program with their Ligier or one of their two Ligiers for the Asia Le Mans series alongside LMP3. As to the nub of Daniel's question, what can be done about the next set of rules? The straight answer is write better rules. Uh, it is fair to say that um, I think there was a degree of, how can I put this gently? Effery? A lack of common sense in the way in which the rule set was um, put into place. It's fair to say that the Joker process lived up to its name. It was a bit of a joke. It did not allow uh, the other LMP2 manufacturers to catch up the gap to a blindingly predictable uh, superiority from Orica for two reasons. And if, if for those listeners that have joined us, you know, uh, some months after we've covered this before, and there are they are legion uh, to explain that, this Orica 07 effectively was an evolution of the previous 05 LMP2 car, the pre-2017 car. It is the only car that was able to carry over a, well, the same chassis, so you could upgrade a 05 and came with the benefits that there'd also been a parallel LMP1 program, the Rebellion R1, with much the same um, underpinnings, which meant they'd already had, effectively, a live aero development process for some years with that package. That meant they hit the ground pretty literally running, and it meant that in aerodynamic terms... There were some other weaknesses to some of the other packages, but in aerodynamic terms, they were leagues ahead. And everybody, and I do mean everybody, that has made that jump from a Ligier or a Delara to um, an Orica has reported the same. The operating windows for the cars are dramatically different. In fact, heard today from an ex um, uh, in this case, Ligier LMP2 team, that the difference, for instance, between 0.1 of uh, bar for the um, uh, the tyre pressures on the Ligier took it out of the performance window, whereas with the Orica, uh, it's got a far wider operating window, and whether or not that is an adjustment or even a mistake, you can drive around that far more comfortably and still come out with, you know, competitive performance. The Ligier, if you can keep it up there on the bubble, it's still a fantastic car, but for various reasons, some, uh, let's say, mistakes were made um, that kept it from being ultimately competitive all the time with the Orica. Delara, as we know, had an aerodynamic uh, flaw. They were not allowed to fix that with the Joker process. I think this is a situation where the rule makers failed the sport. Uh, they could have actually helped this to be better. They, they opted uh, to stick with the regulations as drafted rather than changing the regulations, which clearly did not serve the purpose. Neither did they put in the, uh, the, uh, the opportunity to enact the balance of performance side of those regulations. And that has led directly to us having effectively now an all Orica LMP2 class until the end of these regulations, which we expect to be 2024, a year after we expect to see LMDH where those chassis, the new chassis, will be the new LMP2 class. So I'm afraid, I'm sorry, but this is a bit of a custard pie in the face for the rule makers. If they'd wanted this to be a more open marketplace, there were several opportunities for them to do so. They didn't. Therefore, I'm terribly sorry, it's their fault. Um, 
you could bl- point the finger of blame at Ligier and at Delara, but reality is there was always going to be some degree of performance imbalance. Either you want a varied field or you don't. It's not nothing against Orica. They produced a fantastic car. Everybody that uses these cars agrees it's a fantastic piece of kit. And by the way, even if you've got an all Orica field, the racing's still pretty darn good. But there's no getting around the fact that one of the things that brings people to sports car uh, racing, and in particular sports prototype racing, is variety. And we are losing out on that. Sorry, Mm. wheel makers, but there's things you could have done. Can I ask, Graham, Mm. if, like the Rebellion LMP1 that has been approved to be rebadged for next season as an Alpine... Any thoughts on whether the ACO and WC would allow Setilar to buy an Areca and rename it as a Delara? So that way we still have at least a little bit of diversity that they brought. I'm I a think, problem think, solver. I'm just saying. Well, they, well, here's the thing. Delara do make a road car now. Ooh. For the first time in their long, long history, Delara do make the Stradale road car. So they are actually a road car maker. Uh, now, the, the answer there would be a big fat no. Damn. It's, you know, I know it's slightly tongue in cheek, but uh, only slightly, but um, no, I think is the answer. And it's fair to say that the Settle R racing guys, they're, they're, they are pretty sad about having to say goodbye to their non competitive uh, LMP2 chassis choice. And by the way, the reason, if, if we've not covered this one, why are they in? Uh, a Delara because it's an Italian car and they're very proudly an all Italian team. Um, and they're going to go with an all Italian Ferrari instead. And that, I think that's a bit of a loss to the sports uh, with the departure. It seems of the Thunderhead Carlin effort. They, you know, may well have been back for the latter part of the season have opted not to be with COVID still a factor and with, well, you know, Fewer and fewer teams looking to field the Ligier chassis. There are still cars out there in the hands of teams that might want to run them. Um, you know, I think we've got very, very few that are really looking to step up there and do exactly that. I think you might see. I mean, Euro International have said that they would might like to actually run an LMP2 Ligier. Eurasia may still run an LMP2 Ligier. As I've said, we'll probably see at least one Ligier from into Europol in the Asia Le Mans series, but the days of variety are rapidly coming to a close, and I think that's to be mourned. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be you know, an Orica hater to mourn the fact that there's fewer and fewer competitive choices, and there's lots of reasons. Aerodynamics in some instances the homologated gear ratios are, are quite another, you know, that believe it or not, you cannot change the gear ratios in these cars. They are homologated with what they've got. That to me, just right there, that's nonsense. You know, if that's rendering a package uncompetitive, there should be a process by which you can complete that case and get a sensible decision. It appears not to be the case. And I'm here to say, really, honestly, you know, we've seen things move on, Radically, I'll give you a reason, an example of that that actually has happened today. We've come back to this fabulous track here, of course, which uh, hosted a Grand Prix for the first time uh, just days Last ago. Last weekend, yeah. In preparation for that, the entire circuit was resurfaced. That's removed some of the notorious bumps here at Portimao. Uh, last year, we had the race lap record was set by one Phil Hansen, and that was a one. 33.220 today in the first free practice 128.6 wow. that's how far 
things have moved on, albeit on a resurfaced track, but with a bit of a tyre war uh, underway. That's how things have moved on just in the period since 2017 when these regulations were first brought in. So for me, you've got to be dynamic in these things. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, in this instance, uh, for reasons that certainly they have not decided to make public, rulemakers have decided not to be dynamic. And I think that's to be regretted. Yeah. Good question, Daniel. Yeah, very good question. Let me add something that has nothing to do with this, but I figure you might find it amusing, and who knows, some listeners might find amusing. Uh, we have the end of the month coming up tomorrow. I can't tell you exactly where the number is going to be, but uh, I think by the close of this month, meaning we have two months left in the year, we will have set an all-time traffic record uh, for our little podcast. And so I think by the close of tomorrow, we should mm-hmm. be at somewhere around 1.95 million downloads for the year. Wow. Uh, yeah. And let's face it, that's in a year where there have been some challenges getting content to the websites. I mean, we've not been able to do, for instance, very much by way of Inside the Sports Car Paddock this year. Why? Because we've not been able to get into many paddocks, and the ones we have been able to get into, we're not allowed to go into the garages. So that's pretty remarkable stuff, and thank you, thank you. I mean, you know, I know you and I, we say to each other kind of privately, it's a quiet joy to do this on a weekly basis. It's a bit of an escape from, you know, what's is not been an easy year professionally for anybody. Um, but it's a bit of a joy to share some of the passions we've got and the insights, you know, we, we managed to kind of garner with clearly a very engaged and growing audience. And those numbers suggest that it most certainly is growing and growing like topsy. Crazy. So by, I don't know, mid November, I think we could eclipse 2 million downloads in a single year, which Last year, which was a record traffic year, we had uh, 1.67 million downloads for the entirety of 2019, all 12 months. So we're going. Not only are we well past that now, uh, well prior to the end of the year, but yeah, just a. I mentioned this as a thank you to you, Graham, and to our listeners. Uh, our little week in sports cars. It's been a delightful little performer. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not smart enough to write uh, sponsorship contracts to get paid per download or whatever else. So uh, <laughs> the number doesn't affect anything. I mean, granted, this isn't a profit deal, but uh, the download number doesn't change anything for us. It's just a really nice affirmation that uh, the two monkeys here that do their best to align their schedules with you more often trekking throughout the globe and me on whatever silly Gilligan's Island type journey each week. Uh, thank you all for... Uh, making sure that this little thing's consumed because it'd kind of suck if it was just you, me, the dog, and the two cats. So <laughs> um, I just, just want to add something else, by the way, because that's just triggered another, uh, another memory. I do recall we answered some questions around them on time that focused on Andy Blackmore's Spotter's Guide. Do you remember that one? I do. Um, I, I recall there being a couple of comments on the Facebook page asking – that we take an opportunity, if we could, to thank Jim Maguire Aero for his support for that this year because we stood not to get that. Um, I did that today. I actually had a good chat with Jim oh, nice. uh, this morning. Um, I had a chat with him about that. We talked about Andy's efforts, and he said, look, you know, 
it's absolutely key to what we do in terms of supporting race teams and putting awesome finishes on liveries and happy to hear by the way that aero's going from strength to strength so I uh, can't remember immediately who it was that asked us to do that, but I did see Jim. He's, he's missed a couple of races this year. Saw him face-to-face for the first time uh, this morning on the pit lane as we shot um, a full team shot uh, here with Dave Lord and shot that this morning at about uh, 7.30. Um, and uh, he's grateful for the, the feedback from people who care about those great things. And well done for you guys for passing that on. Absolutely. Well... We're going to move on to uh, Summers Guild Daniel, a uh, new contributor to the show, who asks, are there any updates regarding what teams are likely to be in GTE Pro in the good old WEC next season? Adds me personally, hashtag me personally. I think (laughs) Porsche sort of confirmed their two cars, but worryingly nothing announced from Aston Martin yet, and is the GTE Pro effort likely to be finished for AMR at the end of 2020? I think the answer is um, right. So you're quite correct. Porsche, when they announced they were pulling from IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, did effectively confirm they were going to stay aboard for the WEC into next season. Hearing nothing at the moment that suggests that the AF Corsa run Ferrari program is in any way at risk. And um, I've heard nothing official, but I am hearing increasingly positive things about Aston Martin. Um, And... I'll try and expand on that when I can. Uh, but for the moment, uh, I'm hearing increasingly positive things about Aston Martin and their return to the WEC in GTE Pro. Let's leave it at that for this moment. And you can take from that slightly fumbled answer anything that you will, dear listeners, uh, because I think there's a lot going on at the moment in the world of uh, the automotive. Uh, those of you that follow the news will have seen that there is um, this week been confirmed that Mercedes-Benz have taken a 20% shareholding in the overall company at Aston Martin. That, of course, is going to have some effects on exactly um, the direction that's going to be taken by the group moving forward. I happen to think that's probably quite positive for the motorsport side. But so uh, it's a bit of a hashtag. Let's wait and see. There we, we go. Know. That's what I was know. waiting for. Way. All righty. We're going to move on to Geronimo Lazos. Love this question. You actually tipped things off years ago on a uh, April (laughs) Fool's here. Geronimo says, hi, guys. Always great and uplifting to hear your podcast. Thanks for lying to us, Geronimo. Uh, On the topic of WEC, do you happen to know if Volvo is considering Le Mans hypercar? And he puts in brackets, not Le Mans Daytona Husky. Right. The answer is I know nothing. This this comes uh, that the, uh, the little bit of merriment comes from a little collaboration we did with one young Daniel Hansel, who uh, we did an April Fools with a. I think it was was that a it was a Volvo DPI, DPI wasn't it? Yes, which, which caught out one of our good friends, didn't it? Calvin Fish. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> mentioned on a broad the uh, the immediate broadcast following it that. Uh, had seen that uh, Volvo was looking into uh, doing a DPI, at, to which yep. point um, Sorry, Calvin. Graham did a spit take, changed his underwear, and apologized <laughs> to uh, the local police for the shrieks and, shrieks and screams coming out of his house. No one was being murdered, but yeah, that, uh, yeah. yeah. It is what it is. So the answer is, I have heard nothing. Where do we start with this? There's a lot of potential brands that could be involved moving forward. Volvo, part of the Geely Empire, G-E-E-L-Y, Chinese conglomerate, 
um, that have other brands, including Polestar, uh, as a new addition to the automotive marketplace. And I'm not hearing anything about Polestar either, I should say, but I am hearing that the list we have currently, you and I, MP and others, uh, of the manufacturers that have been involved in the technical working groups is not complete in terms of it being a wider uh, list that should include those that are directly interested and evaluating their possible uh, entry into a top class in international sports car racing, either in North America or on the global front with the WEC. So, right, to, to answer the question, no, I know nothing about uh, Volvo doing it. No, I know nothing about Polestar doing it. No, I noth know nothing about Geely doing it. But what I absolutely do know is that if your reference work is the list of teams, list, sorry, of organizations in the technical working group, that is not the complete list. It is a bigger number than that. Ooh, that's a little bit of spicy right there. I love it. Uh, well, let's by see. the way, yes. by the way, yes. sorry, to add the other part of it is if you approach this on the basis that LMH is effectively dead in the water in terms of in, in, uh, in terms of the numbers post Peugeot, you are wrong. There is more. Yeah, it's not just it's not just LMDH moving forward. It is more. Wow. Well, love the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, not speculation, statement. Oh, I told you he's going to be on the boil today, y'all. And we haven't even gotten him up on a proper, proper mm. soapbox yet. So I feel, feel there might be a rant or two coming. Might be just uh, unspurred, just on his own. Uh, we're going to drop the proverbial Mentos into the top of Granny's head and watch it explode. Uh, our pal Ryan Comerford says, Hey, gents, regarding LMDH, curious what has happened to Ford? They were one of the most vocal manufacturers last summer when the regulations were taking shape. Uh, then when Convergence was announced at Daytona, they were nowhere to be found and haven't said anything publicly. So I guess we might extend that to not just LMDH, Graham, but LMH in general, or do we just want to say the yeah. new upcoming prototype regulations? Well, okay. I mean, I think the, the issue there is, I mean, there's not been a lot, a lot of focus from Ford on what they want to do going forward. They've now got this fusion of regulations between the Le Mans hypercar and Le Mans A Ford uh, fusion H, regulations? Uh, indeed. Okay. And, you know, there's a kind of transit between those two uh, regulations. But who's going to escort those regulations, Graham? I that, don't that, know. But the other thing is, is it going to be just in America or is it like a more, more kind of Mondeo uh, global uh, uh, idea? Uh, the, the answer is I have no clue what Ford are going to do. Nothing at this point would surprise me. A, I, a kind of response that is silence and we don't give a crap uh, would not be remotely a surprise. It would not be a surprise if, if we got into a flurry of announcements that something came forward from the Ford group um, that indicated some kind of interest in it. I sort of get the impression at the moment it's not really immediately on their radar. What do you think, MP? I, yeah... I would be somewhat surprised, actually, if the Blue Oval is not part. And I realize we're oh, in, really? our, in our WEC ASM Elms Echo category right mm -hmm. now. But uh, granted, for those who aren't aware, with the ACO WEC approach to future prototype mm -hmm. regulations, both their homegrown LMH 
regulations and the co-created LMDH with IMSA. Both those formulas are welcome uh, in Europe. Uh, over here right now, only LMDH. So uh, one manufacturer or many manufacturers could choose to use the, quote, American formula to race in Europe if they decided to. So I, though, Graham, not other than Le Mans, I, I, don't know, I could see this. I couldn't see Ford doing WEC with an LMDH. No. I could see Ford joining in the party here come 2023 in good old America and adding in Le Mans. So that'd be yeah. cool. Yeah. It's, 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 it's that kind of program, isn't it, really, that would be a game changer for what's going on at the moment with, uh, with IMSA. It'd be a game changer to get to, you know, we believe Honda are coming. Um, we're hoping that others will stay uh, as well, but to actually get the Ford name for the overall is another of those kind of game changing uh, prospects. Uh, I hope so. I, I, I'm very keen that what we don't get here from this converged set of regulations is one really healthy championship and one that is struggling for numbers. That would be, and I should say, by the way, Right now, I think of the two potential partners, the one that risks that is more looking like IMSA than the WEC. The WEC at the moment, it seems to me that most of the kind of the interest that I'm hearing about is talking on a more global basis, but talking about more cost control for the calendar moving forward. I hope I'm wrong uh, because it needs two healthy products here to keep the other partner honest. Yeah, yet again, saying things that are good. Graham Goodwin. Uh, hey, why don't we go to our pal Malcolm Scopes? Says with pe- people like Honda leaving Formula One, saying they need more relevance, do you think it's time the ACO made more information available on its plan behind introducing its uh, hydrogen prototypes and maybe other non fossil fuel technologies? Says to me they should state an intention to introduce a class with broadly similar chassis regs to LMH, but with free propulsion regs, except for the rule of not using fossil fuels. Um, it's, a, it's a good point well made. There's, I think there's a lot more detail known to the, uh, the interested parties about what is planned and how than is out there public at the moment. The last time... I had the opportunity to speak in depth to Pierre Fion, very much the president of the ACO's baby, the hydrogen regulations. He was bullish in terms of his level of confidence about the way forward. That, by the way, was about a year ago. It was uh, the unveiling of uh, Total's portable hydrogen fuel station that uh, has been used in the paddock for the H24 um, demonstration car. At that stage, he was telling me that uh, negotiations with multiple manufacturers, the indication was that was somewhat more than three manufacturers about regulations coming in about 2024, 2025, uh, for cars capable of winning the race overall, um, that he was very pleased indeed with the direction and tone of those. Since then, what we do know is, of course, the world has changed with the onset of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, I have had half of a conversation with uh, both with Pierre and with other 
people involved in the technical um, machinations in the background. And I'm hearing not a lot of difference in tone. It is still clearly a very live subject. The timeline does not appear to have shifted terribly much. Um, I think we will hear a lot more about hydrogen in the next 12 months or so in terms of what's deliverable and who might be involved in that. We've got an idea about who some of those potential partners might be, um, but there's no doubt about it that this is an area where the ACO believe there is going to be a real opportunity uh, to push forward on the technology fronts beyond that kind of staging post that LMDH and Lamont Hypercar sort of serving in terms of keeping costs down at a point where trying to justify the huge budgets that were going in to LMP1 through the hybrid development era, that's gone. Um, this is the next possible place that you might be looking for, for technology rather than branding being at the fore of a top class in international sports car brand, uh, sports car racing. And it's about half a decade away. That's not very long. Uh, so we've got a lot, actually, excitement to look forward to. Hypercar, it's new. It's very different. It's in some ways a step back in terms of performance, but potentially a step forward in terms of the level of uh, level playing field of competitiveness. The Toyota uh, Hypercar ran for the first time last week. Uh, the Glickenhaus is due to run for the first time in early January. Uh, we've then got LMDH to look forward to in that middle period, the kind of 2022 for development, 23 probably for the first entries. And very soon after that, a year, two years after that, the potential that we could see uh, those cars going head to head with hydrogen fueled missiles for the overall wins in international racing. Uh, you know, Think about that as we look for the light at the end of this awful tunnel that is 2020. Yeah, see? Just more good things falling into our brain, courtesy of Graham Goodwin. Uh, let's see, we're going to go to our pal, Dennis Prokniak. What made the ACO give up the yellow headlights in GTE? This is watching the GTD class at Petit Le Mans. Reminded me how useful this feature was to tell classes apart at night. It's very simple, um, the answer. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It does make it more difficult to tell the classes apart at night. But the reality was the yellow headlamps didn't work as well. Um, and they were not getting the amount of light from those yellow tinted um, headlamps as modern headlamps do. And they are of, well, skin-melting proportions in terms of the light that comes from them. Uh, but it's as simple as that, Dennis. The reality was you were beginning to get to the stage where uh, the rule makers were listening to the teams when they were saying, we can't see. We can't see as well as we think we should be able to. Think as well about this is that the technology of vehicle lighting has moved on pretty dramatically in the last decade or so. Remember when at one of Audi's major selling points of their revision year on year for their LMP1 was the laser light. They could LED cut through lighting. the cars in front of them with their laser <laughs> headlights. But it's it's you know it, it, it's dramatically improved in terms of the, um, the the power and the the usable kind of power of those. And why would you want to drive around with cars that you can see less with? Sadly. I agree with you in terms of the, the way in which you can pick cars out of a pack. Unfortunately, the argument won the day that they're simply less efficient. 
We're going to round off Weck Azlemelmzako with a couple of good friends of ours. Jacob Bame, you sent in a heck of a bunch, uh, all of which are pretty cool. Uh, why don't I go with this one here of the many? Back in the beginning of the year, before uh, there was news circulating of Corvette evaluating potential customer sales for their C8R, did anything come out of those evaluations? And what are the chances we might actually see some Corvettes in private hands on either side of the pond in 2021? What have you heard, Graham? Um, not about C8R. I can tell you that I'm aware of and I'm tracking what the plans are for a customer C7R uh, that has been recently sold, one of last year's factory cars that's made its way into private hands and might see some race use moving forward. Um, C8R... I think there's two parallel stories here. One is about the rumoured, reported uh, GT3 slash GTD conversion kit that uh, Pratt & Miller either have or are developing. I think that's quite an interesting one to track. The one thing I'd say about C8R and indeed every Corvette since the beginning of time is they don't tend to build very many of them, do they, Marshall Pruitt? No. I think that... I think there are three C8Rs in existence that are to raceable specification, and that's it right now. It's not like they've got a couple of spare cars sitting at the back of the workshop. They don't. They have three. Um, and that does tend to cramp the style uh, in terms of the ability to actually uh, add things into your program. We've had that one-off uh, appearance at Cota, didn't we, of the car? Am I right? Did we have a C8R at Cota this year? Did there was we a one-off. Go to Cota? I'm trying to think. Yeah, it did. It was a replacement for the. Um, this was the WC car. Okay. Maybe. So I think they did do that. Apologies, it was a race I wasn't at, so I'm not terribly clear. I hope we are going to see some customer sales for that car. I think that would be a great thing to see. It's clearly a potent weapon, closing in on the titles, uh, Laguna Seca. Um, this weekend and i'd love to see uh, one of those cars in a full season of wc am i expecting it no would it be great to see someone trying to do something different other than with you know a ferrari a porsche or an aston martin of course it would um does it seem to me that that's a priority for corvette racing and pratt and miller it really doesn't I, I don't see that being on the top 10 of the things they must achieve by the end of the year. Whether or not that changes with the current environment, uh, MP, maybe that's a point of debate, but I don't see customer sales and customer support being part of the DNA of that program. Would also just add in, I guess you could look at it both ways. Hey, everyone knows this has been a tough year financially for everybody. Wouldn't potentially uh, opening up vehicle sales uh, be a way to offset some of the factory costs and such. If we're talking high volume, yes. If we're talking low volume, which as Graham mentioned, is uh, Corvette racing standard, I think it would be the opposite. The costs involved to do spare part support and technical support and all these things um rarely does it end up being something where you go cool we just took a really meaningful number off our annual operating budget 20 percent, 25 percent. if it's something where it's that big i think it'd be considered but 
I think in reality right now, Graham, uh, I don't know if they would do much more than make a little tiny bit, you know, single digit percent savings, but with a whole lot of uh, extra work involved. So, yeah, I think just the timing of this as well, as we have mentioned so often, I think the timing of such things is really conspiring against uh, this being a reality right now, at least. So speaking of reality, we are going <laughs> to take one more question. SRA smoking puppy 841. Mm. How many entries can the WEC take before a solution needs to be found to the potential WEC entry equals Lamar entry? Uh, I could see that the WEC car count uh, returning to maybe the mid-30s next season. And once you get into the auto invites and factory slash pro cars, a.k.a. Corvette and Reese, you run very quickly out of spaces on the grid, especially if the expected and hoped for growth also comes to the top class in the next couple of years. I think this might be where we onboard you to a little bit of mm-hmm. a soapbox. Yes and no. I mean, uh, it's 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 been written. I've written it a couple of times that um, the kind of cul-de-sac that's been painted for the ACO leaves the selection committee with remarkably few decisions to make in a year where we've got um, you know a surplus of entries. Uh, we have a history that we've had a, a cap put on. WC entries about 32, although we've had 34 full season entries more recently, although seldom if ever did they all turn out uh, to be full season entries. But about 32 is about the maximum they will take. That is limited um, in part by the uh, level of pit lane that they'll go to, in part by the logistical constraints and economies of scale. Uh, Gerard Deveau has said to me more than once, in part, uh, by the level of service that they believe they can give with a, cha- a global championship like the WEC, um, that they would not want to have a customer base that is too far in excess of that um, because they believe that with the team they've got, that would overstretch those resources as well. So it's it's the very low 30s is the kind of number. If you add into that the fact that something like this, it's about 15 um, – auto entries from all sources, uh, including the two that come from IMSA, plus uh, the entries that come from the WEC. So if you call it 30 plus 15, although in reality seldom more than 11 or 12 of those are actually additional entries. So it's about 40 or so, 40 low 40s that would really be uh, included uh, as gimmies in uh, the uh, 62 car maximum grid that Le Mans can now accommodate. It gives somewhere between single figures and lower than 20 that the ACO um, can decide upon. You've then got to count against that, something you uh, you actually raised there, which is realistically, unless they're going to be really silly, if factory GT entries are going to be coming from United States, um, before we get to LMDH, they're not going to be turned down. You then get to the stage where that we've had for a couple of years in recent seasons where the actual number that the selection committee have to sit down and discuss is around 10, maybe even less than 10. And at that stage, I do sense they're beginning to get a bit edgy about some of the choices they're having to make. So hopefully we get back in 2021 to 
the um, economies of scale that we've had previously, where there are somewhere more than 72 uh, requests for entries, including the ones that are uh, uh, you know, effectively going to get theirs anyway. There's some interesting uh, developments coming in terms of fewer factory uh, GTE cars, GTE Pro, GTLM cars, and teams with multiple successes. And a long chat with Richard Dean at United Autosports today uh, about a variety of things, one of which was about the fact that they stand to come to uh, Le Mans in 2021 with effectively multiple potential entries. How many? Well, let's suggest for a moment they stay. Let's suggest for a moment they stay at one WEC entry. To the That's point of creating entry. a United Auto Sports class, as I think I've mentioned well, before. Well, I mean, here's what it is. So let's say they've got one car. They may expand to two for WEC. I wouldn't be at all surprised, is the honest answer. Let's say one. So that's one they would get as of right, because that's part of the WEC entry. They won Le Mans in LMP2. That's two. They've already won the ELMS with a race to go. That's three. And by the way, um, if they get a good result here this weekend, we'll break the point scoring record in the, in the ELMS in a season where we've had one fewer race. Um, there's then the second place in LMP2 in the LMS, which gets an auto entry because of the level of cars. They are leading that battle as well, um, coming into the final race on Sunday. And then there's LMP3 in the LMS, uh, which also gets an auto entry. Guess which team is leading that? So as we stand at the moment, even if United Autosports um, only enter one car in the WEC next season they potentially could come away from this weekend with um, the opportunity to go knocking on the door at the ACO and say, actually, we'd like five entries. Do I expect them to do that? No, I don't. I expect they might be interested in taking more than two, is the straight answer. And frankly, on the basis of history, the ACO would do well to justify not giving them three uh, they have given other teams more than two before. There are a variety of ways in which that can be arranged. We can talk about kind of teams operating licenses, et cetera, et cetera. But this would be a team that has gone through results and earned four, put aside their WC entry. So there's some interesting bits and bobs kicking around here. It's a good question. I do get the impression that the ACO are perhaps less comfortable than they would like to be in terms of the level of auto entries. We've now got regulations across the ELMS and the Asia Le Mans series, though, which dictate how many auto entries you get based on how many cars there are in the class. And as a, for instance, MP, uh, and forgive me if this is slightly wrong, up to 12 entries in LMP2, ELMS, would be one entry for Le Mans. Between 12 and 17 full season entries, it's two. If you had more than 17, it would be three. We've had 15 full season entries in LMP2 for the LMS. Therefore, top two will go to Le Mans um, in 2021. It's a slightly lower bar, by the way, for GTE. And there will be two from GTE that go as well. But that's the formula that's now been developed to try to make things fairer based on your chance of winning an auto entry, earning an auto entry, based on your success against a larger or smaller grid of cars. 
How fun. Well, I think we are D-U-N done with Weck Aslam Elms, Aco. Where do we go, Carmen San Diego? Well, I've uh, put this uh, vote to the popular vote, and uh, most of the popular votes said they wanted to go to WC again, but I'm deferring to the Electoral College, and it's IMSA. What? Um, so we're going to go to IMSA. And the first one comes from – this is a new name for me. This is Rishi Deshpande, and that's not a name I remember seeing before. Yes, Rishi's uh, been joining in on our IndyCar program, and I think sent oh, in a question uh, for the excellent. first time at our last episode. So see, that Rishi, he doesn't care about you. I do. Uh, I, I'm very, very sorry, in fact. And it's two questions here, one from Rishi and one from Jamie Bender, both of which um, do, I'm afraid, expose uh, the fact that Ryan Kish can't spell Renga van der Zander, uh, a point yeah. we've discussed, Ryan. Um, <laughs> so Rishi says, were you surprised by Renga van der Zander getting dropped by WTR? What do you think drove that move? What's WTR's lineup looking like next year? Uh, and also asked whether or not there's any other IMSA and WC silly season bombs we should be expecting. Uh, whereas Jamie is slightly, slightly more direct. Why the hell oh. is WTR giving Renga, he spells it correctly, by the way, Ryan, van der Zander the boot. Any insider information on why they would lose him after being as successful as they have been with him. Another great driver now looking for a ride. What can we tell the assembled masses, and they are apparently legion, um, about the departure from um, the safe haven for his career that until just about now was Wayne Taylor Racing. It sounds like WTF, WTR is the line of questioning here, Graham. I was completely surprised at this development, and that's because I had heard from a few sources, and I would say well-placed sources, that uh, the fine young as American race car driver and IMSA commentator A.J. Allmendinger likes to pronounce his name, Renger Vanderzander, um, young Mr. Vanderzander, was indeed returning to Wayne Taylor Racing out of contract at the end of the year, but that uh, he was absolutely uh, someone that they intended to keep. And end of statement. So why all of a sudden is Renger preparing to do his final races for Wayne Taylor Racing? I can only give you interpretation and little bit of rumblings that I've heard, not actual uh, someone at the team told me the answer type deal. Um, I think there were possibly too many times over the last couple of years while Renger has been there, where the metronomic excellence that the team came to expect from the sons of the team owner, Ricky Taylor and Jordan Taylor, I, having looked at lap time comparisons, having just remembered some events that uh, when Renger was in the car, just didn't seem to have a lot of answers uh, or the ability to either maintain that position the car was given to him in or had fallen back. Those kinds of things, I know culturally at that team, it, that's the poison pill, Graham. Any hint that you are not always excellent 
And there were times where we can say Renger was not necessarily always excellent. Uh, That's the first thing that came to mind in trying to figure out why he might not be returning. The other thing, which I would say is probably the number one reason why he is not returning, is a rather amazing Portuguese driver by the name of not uh, Felipe van der Zander, uh, Felipe Albuquerque, uh, is available to hire. No disrespect to Renger, but I would say, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Graham, I think reputationally, Felipe holds a higher ranking in our sport, at least among prototype drivers. And if you had to choose between the two, I'm not saying that there's a vast difference, but I'm saying there's a little more cachet something attached to Felipe, who's also had pretty darn good year driving them LMP2 base prototypes. So, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll add, it, I'll add in here. We, we spoke a little while ago about the um, successes of United Autosports and the titles that have already been gained and the entries for Le Mans that have come with them. Felipe Albuquerque has been involved in every single one of them. Uh, he is the WEC uh, champion, together with Phil Hansen. He is the Le Mans 24 Hours winner, together with Philip Hansen. He is the European Le Mans Series champion, together with Philip Hansen. And uh, with absolutely due respect to Phil, whose Ironman stints as a silver-ranked driver have been a very key part of that, no doubt about it, the gun has been Felipe Albuquerque, and he generally tends to do it with a smile on his face at the end of it. Uh, and by the way, none of this is a slight on the abilities of Renger van der Zander. Um, Renger, a very, very quick guy indeed, but as we've said time and time and time again, particularly when we discuss the kind of pro-amness of most of sports car racing, you would normally not expect that it'd be much beyond a tenth or two between the pro drivers, if they've determined there's a tenth or two or even more in any circumstances with Felipe Albuquerque and that he may come with other benefits too, and we don't know what they might be. He makes great uh, coffee. He's great coffee. He does make great coffee. Uh, and by the way, so proud to be here at Portimao uh, as a champion. And what a delight to see the response of the local marshals seeing me on the pit lane this morning. An absolute buzz. But um, do we expect him to be confirmed at Wayne Taylor Racing? Yeah, I think we probably do, don't we? Let me throw this in. I would, we would be remiss if we did not address this. It has to be brutal for someone like Renger, who, based on what we have read, uh, seemingly was led to believe that he was returning. Um, This caught him as unawares as it caught the rest of us. The moment you are told the job you currently have is no longer going to be yours at the end of the week, end of the year, end of the season, you've got two competing things to deal with. And it's almost, Graham, the the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other. Which one do you listen to? It's absolute human nature to want to go MNF and sons of a bitch of rugger, friggers, agates, and just, right, curse out the world, scream and shout at the team that just let you go. Again, totally understandable, totally human nature. But the moment that you learn you are about to lose 
the employment that you have and you happen to work in a competitive environment, um, you know, if you lose your job as a dog walker, not exactly something where, oh my God, you know, I've got to get my name back out there. I'm going to lose my stature in the industry. This is one of those things, Graham, where you need to deal with the massive disappointment and shock and all the negativity that comes with it and wrap that up in a ball and put it away immediately and pivot to saying all the right things that might help you, that might pique the interest of someone watching, reading, listening, whatever, to get you your next job. In motor racing, as we know, overstating the massive obvious, uh, drivers lose jobs all the time, gain jobs all the time. This is absolutely part and parcel of working, having this line of work. The fact that while at Spa, was it Spa last weekend or the ring? I apologize. It, it was Spa? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, yep. I, we, you and I do not know the circumstances, uh, whether it was him venting to journalists, journalists asking the question. Granted, I, it comes across as if uh, Renger was the news source of mm-hmm. his no longer being retained by WTR at the end of the year. I feel bad for him because, as I mentioned, there's this two dual stage devil and angel thing you got to deal with. And you need to wrap up the devil part quickly and not let it get out and then just embrace the angel side and espouse that for your own self-interest. I, it, it sure doesn't look, Graham. Uh, and you and I have had these this conversation offline. It sure doesn't look like he did an excellent job of wrapping up that devil and preventing it from getting yeah. out because the backlash, uh, the comments that were made, the quotes and such, and yada, 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 I do not think he did himself any favors in finding more opportunities as a result of how it appeared that he handled this news. Because trust me, whatever team is going to sign him next will at some point in time part ways with him. And those teams, whether it's here in IMSA or elsewhere, I'd say probably more IMSA than anything, but IMSA or elsewhere will immediately go, well, let's run the clock forward to when, in a couple of years' time, you move on, we decide to part ways with you. Um, should we look forward to the same kind of things in print? So I'm not trying to be harsh on him. I don't think I am being harsh on him. I'm just saying that I felt bad for him because this was a total shock and, and slap upside of the head he never saw coming. I just don't know if he helped himself in how he reacted to it uh, in public. Because I've certainly heard from more than a few people that had he kept his mouth shut and gone to work immediately at trying to find other things, um, whatever amount of words he might have wanted to say and had kept to himself would have done yep. him a big favor. Yeah. Wish you well, Renga, if you're listening. I, we genuinely do. I recommended are, uh, him for the seat. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I didn't, granted, he did, you know, one of the things in those scenarios, he doesn't know you anything or me anything. You know, he wasn't telling me anything about, oh, this is or isn't happening. Um, just, you know, I was a guy that back when they were looking for someone and happened to be asked, who do you know of? Who do you think, you know, anyone come to mind? I said, this kid right here, holy cow, yep. coming out of a LMPC, a yep. beast, and got a great shot with them, but just... Great example, isn't he? Great example, isn't he? And we've mentioned a few more of them on the show in recent months. 
of a driver in a in in the case of LMPC completely spec but even in broadly spec categories that that when you find someone that shines out there they tend to be drivers of quality you know the likes of Mike Conway in LMP2 back in the day Brendan Hartley the same you know but Ranga van der Zandt in LMPC shone and absolutely clear as to why you would have uh, mentioned him in dispatches as it were uh, but uh, I hope you find something find it difficult to disagree with a single iota of what you just said well that's strange where should we go next my friend ah. uh, let's go with our friend Miggins Motorsports hey, Miggins Motorsports All right. indeed um, gentlemen he says you got that one wrong yeah. your thoughts on the take up of LMP3 for IMSA the impact on numbers for prototype challenge presumably in next year I am quite surprised at the reaction mm. that I've seen so far. Uh, I mean, heck, just off the top of my head, John Bennett wants to get back to racing yep. and an LMP3, and he can afford to do anything that he wants. So it's not like he's a budget, you know, cash-strapped guy who's like, oh, finally, they got a cheap enough formula I can do. No, the guy can do anything he wants. But he, knowing all that, he finds value in it and sees that it could be a lot of fun uh to get back together with colin brown and go racing again so uh and there are more and more examples of folks that are uh looking at this and seeing value that in the prognostication that we did mostly i i think when uh the class was formally announced as a thing yeah i don't know if i gave a number but at least in the back of my head I figured they'd have maybe five to six cars full-time. I don't pretend to know exactly where the car count is today, but it I've got a, I, have a, I have a clue. It sure does seem like the 10 to 12 cap that they're placing on the... Uh, yep. and the 10 to 12, the reason it's not a specific number is they are leaving themselves open to not just who enters, but quality. So if they get 15 entries and they only determine that 10 of them are really true high-caliber entries, they're going to go with 10. If they happen to get 12 really solid entries, they'll go there. And admittedly, I, I don't know if they'd go below 10, Graham, but that's why they're leaving the last couples a bit unconfirmed, just because they want to see uh, who responds. But, yeah, uh, wow. I, <laughs> I didn't expect I mean, it at all. It, it, yeah, it's not real until the check's cashed. But uh, from what I'm hearing, they are going to have to place that cap. Wow. Yeah. So I love this. Uh, and as I say every now and then on the show, I love being wrong on stuff like this. Like there's <laughs> truly, there, there's no pride in like, aha, I was right about the negative thing. Like really, I think all you and I are really hoping for is, uh, the most positive things happen. So, yeah, absolutely love to be 100% wrong on this. Okay. Uh, we'll move on. We're going to go to Nikolai B, who says, should IMSA allow the LMP2 class to continue as it is? Bronze drivers had average lap times that were slower than GTEs at Petite, resulted in GTEs passing P2s throughout the race. Doesn't really make much sense. Hashtag me personally, says Nikolai. What say you, Marshall Pruitt? the class needs to continue and exist if mm -hmm. there are enough entries to support its existence it's a really general thing to say but 
it applies in the way I look at sport and multi-class racing in particular in every class. Hey, if you've got one DPI, uh, DPI should go away. GTL, I don't care what class it is. If there are not enough to put on a proper motor race and or it just looks embarrassing and all you can foresee for the near future is it's going to look embarrassing, well, then do something about that and make it go away or try and make meaningful changes that uh, will hopefully restore its health. But just continuing to do the thing uh, because you do it and you just show up every year and you kind of put on your little motor race, whether it's two cars or ten, yeah, I don't know if that helped anybody really. So uh, it's a bit of a generic answer, but you know, IMSA, will ha- IMSA already has a really good idea of what its next season is going to look like from an LMP2 standpoint. So while they have not put out the call for entry list, I'm sorry, uh, full season entries, right? We Let's finish the one we got. Um, they will have polled. They'll be doing that this weekend as well, walking around, not only talking to the LMP2 team that is there, or is it teams? I think it's team, uh, but talking team, uh. with perspective, you know, they've certainly spoken with folks throughout the year who are looking at and considering follow up those conversations. I can guarantee they've been on the phone as well with the uh, LMP2 entrants that maybe aren't, uh, haven't driven across the country um, to at least give themselves an idea as to whether this is truly a viable and sustainable class for next year. Um, you know, well, I should say, should say, by the way, I mean, we wrote. DSC, and I think I think I wrote this for Racer as well, that uh, we're hearing from more than one source, but one particular source, CDS source, Orica, that they were expecting a boost to numbers for the full season next year. Four to seven cars was what I was being told. Uh, interesting to see more or less exactly those same quotes actually repeated elsewhere today. Um, some two weeks later, uh, more or less the same story. Uh, but the realities are they're in the best position to know. They are the ones taking the expressions of interest. They're the ones looking at fulfilling uh, either orders for chassis or parts. Um, And they have no reason to give us any old BS. Um, It looks like there's going to be some things emerging in the weeks to come. MP of a very positive nature, uh, stateside for LMP2. And all I can tell you, is I look forward to every single race I come to in the European Le Mans series, and LMP2 is our top class. And if you get half the quality and depth of racing um, with a four to seven car field as we get with, okay, albeit we've got 14 here, then you can have a good time at the races. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, I really do wonder if the introduction of LMP3 is going to be the somewhat rapid death blow to LMP2. Uh, there's obvious, obviously vast differences between the two classes, but if the folks running LMP2 can see that they can have similar-ish fun, albeit at a slower pace in LMP3 and at a much lower price point, uh... You know, the market's going to tell us. <laughs> the market's going to tell us what uh, it will bear, and we know Graham that LMP3 is meant to be a stop-gap class in IMSA's 
WeatherTech Championship. It's meant to boost the grid numbers and nothing more. Well, I would love to see four to seven P2 cars here next year, but if there aren't, uh, and we do see that LMP3 is bursting at the seams with those 12 entries, could that become 16 the next year? Uh, well, or 18 and that LMP2 class down to two or nothing, you know, uh, IMS is going to get its answer. Uh, it's just going to be by what folks are buying and choosing to enter. Well, we've got one other question here with a different uh, kind of bent to it from Rob Chalmers, also about P3. Um, Rob says, if the car counts in next year's introduction of the P3 class is somewhere from solid to very good, do you think IMSA would contemplate a DPI light series where OEMs can brand or DPI, he says here, uh, a P3? Hmm. Well. Good question. uh, It's an amazing question. Uh, And for the umpteenth time, I'm embarrassed on my own show to have not thought of that myself, Rob. Um, (laughs) No. And for one main reason, and it is yet again, we're talking money. IMSA is known to be working on the slimmest of margins. And if we're talking about financial commitments, uh, they need serious commitments from manufacturers at the DPI slash Le Mans Daytona uh, Hyper Husky. Um, they need the biggest class populated with manufacturers spending money befitting of the biggest class. If there is an option for some to do the second tier, uh, what, almost third tier in terms of pace, maybe fourth tier, I'm not sure how, where it's going to land. But if we're talking something that is going to be the, quote, afterthought class, and that's a place where manufacturers are allowed to play, I don't think, Rob, that fits their current financial model. And mm-hmm. also, since they've tried to not discriminate in terms of manufacturer fee to play each year, which, again, we hear is commitment of a million dollars, whether it's to whatever it might be, whether it's a marketing campaign or whatever else, it's one thing for that million dollars to go to come from an Acura for DPI and also GTD, uh, for Corvette for GTLM, um, for Lexus and GTD. Uh, Can you really ask a manufacturer willingly engaging in the smallest but most budget-minded prototype class to spend that same million bucks? I think Mm -hmm. that would be hard knowing where they're choosing to go. And if you were to give them a cut rate, you know, it's only $500,000. What kind of holy hell is going to be received by in the IMPS offices by all the other manufacturers going, hey, wait a minute. Uh, uh, hey, yeah, we want to enter. Okay, we want to enter LMP3 too, but uh, yeah, we might also stay in uh, LMDH or DPI or whatever. So give us a, a break. It's just can of worms, man. It's a classic can of worms. I love the idea. I love the idea of the the old, you know, GTP and GTP lights. There were no restrictions. There was no requirement of money to be spent by manufacturers with the series in order to get a pass, you know, a ticket to be able to play. But, yeah, I like the idea, Rob, but I, I like the idea more of LMP3 being treated like 
whatever uh, DPI or LMDH lights than just LMP3. So if we ever get to a place, Graham, where it's just yep. the top prototype class, no LMP2 and LMP3, I think there would at minimum be a branding change in what it's called. Uh, I'll add in, by the way, just a point of clarity here. Uh, and with actually a, a, a little bit of background that I found interesting with one of the classes you just mentioned, MP, LMP3 and GT3 slash GTD run as part Sorry, it's GTE, apologies, in uh, in the uh, LMS, but they do run uh, on the same field as the Michelin Le Mans Cup. And generally speaking, the LMP3s run ahead of the GT3s, with a few honourable exceptions for a really well-driven GT3 car. Um, but so much of that depends on balance of performance. And let me just give you an indication. Something emerged from the Spa 24 Hours uh, just this last past weekend, um, about the relative pace that, that uh, balance of performance can make on a GT3 car. So I'd have to go back and check, but the lap record for the Spa 24 hours of the GT3 car was set last week, and it was somewhere in the 218s, I seem to recall. Um, and that's with a massively deep field of highly professional very GT3-focused factory drivers. Week before that, it may have been two weeks before that, the International GT Open came to the very same circuit. And the lap record in a Ferrari GT3 car was 213.8, five seconds faster. Now, that is not just down to drive. And by the way, that's quicker than the GTE lap record. Um, so that is not down to driver talent, although that anybody that can take any car around bar in 213.8 is a driver worthy of notice. But that right there is a balance of performance that is allowing those cars to run with a lot more power. So the difference in pace between an LMP3 car and a GTD car is going to be determined in no small part by where the balance of performance is set. Where we've got them running back-to-back, and we do this weekend, generally speaking, as I say, the prototype will be quicker around a particular lap. But if you were to let the uh, GT3s breathe a little more, it would not be difficult to see um, those GTs running ahead of the prototypes in many circumstances. Just thought that would be a point of interest to our listeners to uh, point out the realities of what balance of performance restrictions actually mean to something as potentially potent as a GT3 car. There we go. Let's move on. Uh, And actually still on the subject of, in fact, two uh, questions on the subject of uh, two different GTD cars. Jerry Robert Suddeth says, uh, MP, what was your opinion of Carl Kirkwood's performance for Lexus at Petit Le Mans? Holy cow, a star is born, Jerry. Uh, But, I mean, no surprise. The kid's going to be the Indy Lights champion next year, uh, barring some strange thing happening. He's going to move to IndyCar. He's going to be a badass there. He's going to be a future champion. These are all the things he has the potential to do. Making his WeatherTech Championship debut and his GT racing debut, he's done, done LMP3 this year, Graham, since Indy Lights season was canceled, that's what he uh, he found for himself to do and did quite well. Uh, but yeah, this is just yet another example of how talent transfers. 
no GT3, ABS, any of this kind of stuff. Uh, he's used to super light, medium power uh, junior open wheel cars, and he climbed into you know a rather tall, hefty machine and owned it. And I would say uh, between himself and Jack Hawksworth and Aaron Tielitz, I mean, that's, that's a pretty staggering... Uh, demonstration of talent across those three in the uh, AIM, Vassar, Sullivan, Lexus program. So I don't know, because I haven't asked, I haven't spoken to him in a little bit, I don't know if Kyle's in the frame to return next year for the endurance races or whatever, but uh, I'd say anybody who needs an endurance driver uh, should be thinking about the kid, because holy cow, he was the breakout star of the uh, GTD portion of Petit Le Mans, with the only other possible exception, I would say, and it's not a breakout, it's more a, a reminder, that being Alessandro Balzan, who we haven't seen for a while, past champ, obviously, but uh, folks maybe had forgotten how badass uh, our, <laughs> our, our uh, compact Italian friend happens to be uh, behind the wheel of a uh, Ferrari in GTD. So, yeah, but I, I thought Kyle did himself... He probably earned himself some good money there for many years to come based on that starring drive. Let's hope so. Does it, is it nice when talent pays, literally? Um, next question is actually about, in fact, we've got two questions about the NSX GT3. Uh, we've got Ed Juris and we've also got Jamie Bender, both asking about uh, any intel about whether, uh, whether and who might be running the NSXs. Uh, Jamie, by the way, follows up with a second question. I think there's a different answer to this question that he's actually asking is he mistaken did he hear something about jackie heinrich filming a documentary next season about an all-female race team and will she be running one of the nsx's with msr's help so yes there is some form of documentary being spooled up to start capturing at the end of this year i believe no uh there is not a continuation a third year of the relationship between Meyershank Racing and Heinrich Racing in 2021. Uh, their relationship will be coming to an end at the conclusion of Sebring. And it's not so much because there's super acrimony or bad stuff. It's Meyershank Racing is doing some pretty big and ambitious things next year. And those do not involve GT Daytona. And so they are not competing there. That's known. They've said it. It's been... Uh, well-established since they announced that they are moving to DPI to represent Acura. They're also uh, moving to add a second IndyCar. And it won't be full-time, it will be part-time, but uh, that is something where, uh, although I'm not in a place to mention it publicly, uh, I'm aware of who that IndyCar driver will be, and that's the, the team is certainly moving on up with that acquisition. So, uh, they are going to have their hands full with, uh, call it, one and a half IndyCar programs to run, plus stepping back up to prototype racing in a big capacity to be one of the two Acura representatives. And that has led them to, oh, plus they're building a new 8 trillion square foot shop. Um, <laughs> that has led them to say, we are just going to focus on the uh, expanding IndyCar program in this factory Acura prototype deal and you know could there be technical something or other 
support with an accurate team? Maybe. Uh, but they are not planning on running any NSX GT3s for anyone. So therefore, Jack and Jackie has known this. So this, none of this is a, is a surprise. So actually spent about a half hour on the phone with her yesterday. Her ambition right now, and she did set things in a specific order. Her ambition is to become a IndyCar entrant, uh, starting with the Indianapolis 500 in May assuming the Corolla virus does not knock next year's schedule around. Um, her goal is to become an IndyCar entrant, and she said once that is in place, then she will work on IMSA. So, interesting. And she asked for a little bit of just help in terms of who do I speak with on the IndyCar side, because she's been working on trying to find sponsors for this, wants to do this with a, uh, a woman in the cockpit uh, with a woman driving, and she has some bigger ambitions to uh, bring women onto the road to Indy and develop them since there's just no women in IndyCar right now. Um, so I applaud her in wanting to take Graham, as you and I saw, the program that she unveiled in 2019 at Daytona, the all-female uh, driving roster, which was phenomenal, and apply that to IndyCar. And so we'll see if that happens. Uh, I did connect her with uh, folks at the top of Penske Entertainment. Also connected her with one IndyCar team where, uh, although she and one of the key players there have spoken many times, have been friendly, they just didn't have one another's contact info. So uh, just set her in that direction, and hopefully she can get those things uh, sorted out. And how amazing would that be? So guess what? she wants to be uh she wants to do what michael shank has done and become someone that competes in both indycar and imsa decided she wants to start with indycar first admittedly it's a little bit easier to find money there and i think that's pretty cool i think it's really Mm. cool when you have someone who says i've learned a lot in imsa from working with uh the team that i've been with this being msr in particular i want to continue my education partner with a team uh, in IndyCar to field an entry, just like I've done with Mike and IMSA, and learn that whole side too. And if she can be successful there, she's been successful in IMSA the last two years. I don't think we'd be too many years away from Heinrich Racing becoming more Graham than a partnering entity, but actually becoming a standalone organization with its own assets, own employees, and uh, moving well, on up so. to the east side. But let's hope so, couldn't it? You can always do with a bit of new blood at that level, couldn't it? Um, just have a quick look. Anything more down our list of questions here that takes your fancy before we move through and into the second phase of the week in sports cars are here, Galeral, and, of course, fun. I will just go with a no, not because I don't find anything actually interesting, but just from a we're almost at an hour 20-ish And we have lots to get through, and it is well past your bedtime, young man. It's coming up on almost 1 a.m., so uh, I don't want to be responsible for you falling asleep on the grid. Not a problem. Uh, Let's go with her again, Ralph, in which case. And, well, this is an odd one. Driver rankings. Madison Snow and Phil Hansen. It comes from Bright Turn Lover. Um Excellent question to discuss in Twisk. We'll be the judge of that, right, Sir Lover? Yeah. It comes from Jens Jensen, though. Is Madison Snow 
So this, hang on a minute, this is Right Turn Lover asking a question of us that Jens Jensen has asked of him or somebody. Is Madison Snow more or less amateur than Philip Hansen? So, right. So Philip Hansen, just for those that don't know young Phil, um, United Autosports driver, silver ranked until next year. Uh, where he's just been elevated to gold on the basis he's won literally everything. Um, Silver ranked has, has done his time in LMP3. Where Congratulations for winning everything, Indeed. by the way, Phil. That's amazing. Yes, absolutely. Has been a championship winner and a race winner. Um, moves to LMP2, won races in the Ligier uh, before United Autosports moved to the Orica chassis for this current season. Uh, partnered by uh, Philippe Alcabecourt, and also in selected races by uh, Paul de Resta. That has been a potent combination. And they, as we've already said on this show, have come away with multiple titles already in the bag this year before the seasons have finished. Um, so is he more, uh, is Madison Snow more or less amateur than Philip Hansen? Look, first and foremost, Phil to this point has brought budget to those um, endeavours. Uh, and significant budget to those endeavours, but is aiming for a future as a factory professional. And by dint of his pace and his endurance, I have to tell you, uh, in the brand new era, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a berth somewhere there for him in what some regard. I will admit to not having enough personal knowledge and experience of Madison Snow's background to make a judgment, MP. I would say Phil is the more amateur of the two and mm-hmm. not j- really just based on achievement. I mean, Madison's a GT Daytona class champion. He's just been, whether he's been in pro racing or not, whether he's been silver rated or gold rated, all that nonsense, he's been driving longer. I would say he has been developed at a incredibly high level longer. And I think he's just physically older as well uh, by a couple of years on Phil. So when I think of the two, I think of Phil as the one who has had the most concerted effort year after year, you know, uh, no breaks and anything. Madison took last year off after mm-hmm. receiving an unfavorable driver rating uh, as a result of winning the 2018 GTD championship with Paul Miller racing in their Lamborghini. Uh, which just went up for auction, by the way, uh, the number 48 Lamborghini that they won that championship with. Oh, wow. And I forget the number exactly that it went for, but it was $160,000, I That's was remarkably little. shocked. I'm like, I mean, I, look, I don't make a lot of money, I'm, but I had a feeling like I could almost put, you know, I'd take out some loans, sell some body parts, but I almost felt like I could buy it. And I'm thinking, you know, granted, there are a lot of championships produced, champions mm. produced every year, but knowing what that car cost, right, which had to be five times that amount at minimum, six times that amount no, at no, minimum. No, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not. I mean, that is... I'm trying to think in terms of a Euro UK amount. It's the right side for a Lamborghini. I think I'm right. It's the correct side or about half a million US, something like that. 
that as it stands, that's before you add in all the whistles and bells that are required to be competitive in, a, in a, you know, an international championship of the, the order of the Emerson WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. But uh, as it goes as a GT3 car, the Audi and the Lamborghinis are pretty much bargain basements. Um, compare it to the Ferrari, a far more expensive proposition has been described to me repeatedly by those in the know as realistically, by the time it hits the track, a true million dollar, um, a million euro, in fact, uh, race car. But that is remarkably little for a car with provenance. It really Whatever is. Whatever the number, it's a fraction of what it cost. Mm-hmm. And it is a, as you mentioned, champion. Um, just, yeah, but granted, I think this was sold at like a Barrett Jackson auction right. or a Meekum, you know, next to a Resto Mod uh, Chevy Chevelle from 67 <laughs> with a 427 stroker and blah, 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 like might not have been the right audience. Um, but, you know, frankly, there might have been some very wealthy person in the audience who's like, oh, that'll be a fun little uh, uh, jungle gym for uh, my, my grandson and my granddaughter. So who knows? But yeah, that saddened me a little bit. Um, so... I would just say Madison Snow, who helped win the championship in that car, he strikes me as someone who is more developed than Phil, but he's also not had the fortune to be as consistent as Phil, uh, I would say, of late. So I think there will be a point where Phil might be taking the mantle from Madison because Madison's kind of business, family occupied as well. Um, I can't tell you where the two of them rate in speed right? Head to head, who would be faster in and what car? I don't know. They're both fine young drivers and uh, highly talented drivers as well. So it's an interesting question. It's just one of those, how long is a piece of string questions? I can't really answer it because who the hell knows? Okay. So we'll move on. $198,000, by the way, it went for. one ninety eight. One ninety-eight. Um, just trying to look up what a new one costs. Um, Nikolai B ra- uh, raises driver rankings. Should this is, Silver... this one's for you, by the way. <laughs> this is where we get the soapbox out. Should Silver as a driver ranking exist? Hashtag me personally. Seems the main issue is whether a Silver is a, a slow pro or a fast am. Removing the crossover grading would, in theory, help to differentiate. Have three categories: am, pro, and pro factory. Is this too stupid or too sensible? I don't think it's a million miles away from the mark. I mean, I've said repeatedly on this show, and frankly, to the faces of people in a position to be able to influence the debate, there's one problem. Well, that's, no, apologies. There are two problems with driver rankings. Problem number one is the silver ranking. Problem number two is how you then define what those drivers are allowed to do in terms of drive time in the variety of regulations that are set um, against them, uh, because that does cause some problems. Uh, I'll give you one example. There are a myriad bronze-rated drivers that are permanently irritated by the fact that they are effectively... Uh, put in a position where to be competitive, they can only drive one stint. They'd rather be stretched and given the opportunity to be, you know, less quick than the drivers that, let's face it, for the most part, they generally are paying to be there. Um, but they'd rather be getting a couple of stints in a insurance race to have a crack at. Um, I agree. 
that the silver ranking, I think, has outlived its usefulness, and it wasn't that useful that long anyway, and I think it needs a root and branch review. Whether or not your, as you describe it, simplistic solution is the correct one is up for debate, but we certainly need to look now at the effect that that driver ranking um, debate is actually having on the reality of the business of motorsports. Uh, is it stopping people from coming into the sport? Is it stopping people's competitiveness? Is it is it performing the function it was designed for in the first place? Or in this case, the multiple functions it was designed for in the first place? I would say it is not. I certainly would think it is um, worthy of debate within the organization who are responsible for that ranking process. Yes, I'm talking to you, the FIA. Um, and I think you should always, always look at the rule book you've got on a regular basis, take steps away from that rule book and think, are we achieving what this was designed to achieve in the first place? Or are there hidden consequences to what we've put in place that have been perhaps exposed by the fact that, guess what? Really clever people work in this industry, in this business, and are exploiting some of the loopholes that inevitably exist. For me, I'm staggered and amazed that despite the fact this comes up time and time and time again, there has not been, to anybody's knowledge that I'm aware, any kind of formal review of the process and the determinants that sit within the silver ranking. You're right, Nikolai, it doesn't really make a great deal of sense at the moment. I sort of wonder whether or not it's just too big a problem for them to be uh, worrying themselves about uh, in what is you know, not a particularly well-resourced area of the sport, but it's long overdue a root and branch review. There we go. I'll take the next one. Otto Kinzel yet again makes the epic fail of referring to us as gentlemen, uh, says, I'm curious about what steps away from the track a driver can pursue to increase their odds of success. Aside from sin work, sim work, not sin work, uh, don't kill people, uh, or a mean strength and conditioning program, would pursuing studies in mechanical engineering be preferable? What about getting a job with a racing tire manufacturer to have a deeper understanding of how, when, and why the degradation works? I'd love to know what intangible skills highly successful drivers possess and how they acquire them. The engineering and physics side, I would say, auto is what stands out most. Uh, for example, they can go to work for a racing tire manufacturer, but unless they are on track and competing uh, or using those tires, I don't know how much of an education they would get of the process of degradation if they don't already have it. So, And these are things that you would be learning pretty much from the outset whether it's in junior open wheel, junior touring car, GT type racing, that's just today a big part of what every driver is expected to be learning. I'd say the more a driver can understand the engineering and physics side, that is only going to help. Uh, without turning this into a really long explanation, Making a vehicle go faster, and I'll just say in a simplified situation with a single race engineer compared to a big factory team with you know four or five different engineers attached to each car, but in just a, a purified scenario, 
could be a you know Ferrari Challenge, Lambo, Super Trofeo, uh, whatever Michelin Pilot Challenge. It's traditionally going to be a driver working with a with one engineer, and you have a really interesting dynamic. And you may already know all this auto, but motor racing is problem solving. It's 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 a sport. It's so many things, but it is problem solving. Vehicle has a maximum capability of achieving this performance level, and there's a zillion combinations on how to tune the car to achieve maximum. Pretty much never achieve maximum, but the engineer is charged with coming up with the best combination of changes to get it to its maximum. Well, coming back to your your primary question here, if the driver is able to play a greater role in assisting that engineer in getting to that peak performance index and at a faster rate, that's a competitive advantage. That is increasing their odds of success. So there's a little bit of human dynamic to understand. Um, I was always the kind of race engineer that loved quality input from a driver. And sometimes you get bad input, depending on who the driver is. But a good driver who knew what they were talking about, knew what they were feeling, if they said, hey, boy, uh, if we could really fix this, or hey, what about going up on the front springs 100 pounds or whatever, and I knew that I could trust their feedback, it makes my job easier. And being selfless as much as you can, you'll find that's a trait of most really good engineers. And so this is where auto, if a driver can educate him or herself in the engineering and physics side to better understand the vehicular dynamics. So they're feeling things with their feet and their butt and their hands, and the car is telling them a variety of things, but they might not understand how it all interconnects. If they are just able to say that, boy, the uh, the thr- power down apex out understeer is wicked on these types of corners it's great you're describing an overall situation but you've now just dropped a puzzle into your engineer's lap that is missing about half the pieces if you are able to better describe what is happening in that power on understeer apex out scenario and say that you know i'm feeling that when the car takes a set you can feel the spring do its work you can feel the anti-roll bar do its work but it feels like and maybe they describe a tire uh, being overpressured, under pressured something maybe they talk about a camber or toe change that might be able to help and they understand how all this works within the total vehicle dynamics you are putting more of the pieces of that puzzle in your engineer's lap to figure out and helping them to also solve that puzzle faster. So only thing I'll add that goes counter to this just a little bit, really good engineers, really good drivers. Um, The drivers in particular can learn all these things. The really good ones are able to just discern all these things without ever going to school. Some of them without finishing high school uh, or whatever equivalent in whatever country they happen to be from. So this can certainly be a natural talent that's demonstrated early or something that is learned over time to reach that high state of excellence. 
But if you are a youngish driver and you have the ability and interest, getting yourself smarter in the head about the things that affect the vehicle you drive to then make your race engineer's life easier and faster and more accurate, uh, that's a, I'd say that'd be a huge, huge bonus to consider. Where else should we go, brother? Uh, so we've got a couple more in uh, a couple more areas in uh, general before we get to the end of this one. I'm going to take a couple about the Bathurst 12 hours. I'm keen. Tom Reynolds has got a question about Nick Tandy, which I'd love to hear your uh, views on. Um, but let's go with Debbie Impeachman and Nick Reed. Both have questions about the Bathurst 12 hours. We've had confirmation, not a surprise, that the race is cancelled for 2021. Damien asks me, what will I miss about the Bathurst 12 hours since the cancellation? Nick, um, basically, effectively saying he believes, um, and do we believe, that uh, we can expect the race to be cancelled in 2022. I hope not. It's a long way away yet. I understand the reasons why you'd be sceptical that we might see it um, with limited progress on uh, realistic uh counterpoints to COVID-19 and indeed a very conservative approach being taken indeed by the Australian government to travel restrictions. Um, Damien, what will I miss about it? Everything about part, everything about the race with the exception of the utterly crushing fatigue of doing it back to back with Daytona uh, said before on the show. Uh, I've, I've never been as tired and for that matter as ill as a result of that tiredness, as I repeatedly am, um, by doing those two races back to back, it is absolutely draining. But the experience of going to see that fantastic track, the fantastic race we get, and for that matter, the fantastic people that run that race. And yes, Richard Crail, I'm looking at you. Um, really tough week or two for the um, motorsport community in Australia and particularly the very strong motorsport community in Adelaide with the um, cancellation of the Adelaide 500 yeah. street race that's, that's so tough that is effectively the end of that fantastic street circuit one of the best street circuits in the world uh, walked that circuit when we did uh, the Asia Le Mans series race um, beginning of the year for the Asian Le Mans series at the Bend, uh, spent a day or so in Adelaide, and boy, I'm feeling for those people. These are real motorsport enthusiasts, root and branch. If you look, MP, at the number of Australians that you and I know that are involved in various aspects of the sports, there is a pretty common factor for most of them. They come from Adelaide, that came in no small part from the fact that the Grand Prix went there and they grew up with it. And yes, Paul Ryan, I'm looking at you, Jane Rowe, Jackie Warnock, uh, you know, looking at all of you that it's it's so sad to see the, the deep sorrow they've all got from the end of that part of the, the history of that great city. Um, and let's hope that that's transposed into more investment, more events eventually once we get through this bloody nightmare. Uh, going to the Ben Motorsport Park, which is, you know, an hour or so out of the city, but a magnificent facility. Um, Bathurst, it'll be back. It's too good an event for it not to be back. Will it be back in 2022? I really hope so, Nick. It deserves to be. What will I miss about the Bathurst 12 hours? 
everything. It's it's just one of those events that when you've had a taste of it, whether or not that's being able to follow it online, you know, um, but in particular, if you've had an opportunity to visit the place, you'll just want to go back again. It's like Le Mans in, in that regard. You don't go to Le Mans once. It just draws you back, and it's exactly like that. Um, difficult to explain to those that have not been. Um, it's a very approachable, accessible, world-class event, and there are precious few of those. That's that's what I've got to say about it. Next one, and it's one, as I say, I'm keen to hear what you've got to say about this one. Um, and it comes from, just got it, Tom Reynolds. How underrated, or maybe uh, maybe under the radar, is Nick Tandy? Shows up, wins big races, goes home to the family, builds model cars and RC cars. Simple. What a winner. Oh, I mean, come on. Uh, that's Don't be silly, Tom. Uh, Nick Tandy, he's the bestest. And he's, if, if it's such a thing, he's among the most humanist of, he is. of race car drivers that we know. Uh, not that it means anything, but it stands out. And I think it maybe means something in a alternate way to answer your question. When I, I launched this podcast in May of 2016, the first interviews I started doing to get into the can and get them ready and such, uh, happened to be, I think at the roar before the 24. So first week of January. Nick was my first interview and wow. it wasn't a, it wasn't a coincidental timing of like, Oh, well, he's just the guy that, you know, who happened to be able to go first. I wanted to sit down and interview Nick first. Now, granted his was not the very first episode. A few months later interviewed Mario Andretti and, you know, did a nice look throughout his career. And I thought that would be a good opener to this silly little podcast. But the first person that came to mind that I knew I would see to open the year for this upcoming podcast no one knew about that I wanted to sit down and talk with. Uh, and he had a lot of things going on and some things that weren't announced and so on and so forth. But um, it was Nick because obviously having been there and watched his just storming drive to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans 2015 Easy to say, without Nick's performances, particularly when things got wet, they don't win. That car doesn't win, at least. Um, yeah, I just thought the world of him, knowing the family tragedy that he dealt with and how he mm -hmm. dealt with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also just, I don't pretend like Nick and I are best friends, but we're pretty friendly, and he's just a good bastard, and you can have fun with him. And if you give him a bit of stick, he'll give it right back. Oh, yeah. All those things added up to I want to sit down and talk with him first because I think since this podcast format is new to me, I think I'm going to I'm giving myself the best chances of the first one going well. And if that goes well, I feel like the rest can. So I know it's a little bit more of a talking about podcast and me stuff, Tom, to get to your answer about Nick. But this guy is just pure gold. And well, he uh, is just put him in a car, especially in a situation, Graham, where we know that there's something really on the line that he has to go out and achieve for a great result, or there's a high risk. If things don't go well, something could be lost. Like he's the guy who within that Porsche factory program, 
hasn't always been perfect. I'm not saying he's never made a mistake, but he's the guy that I have seen with the ability to place more weight on his shoulders and have all the crazy jeopardies. Who are we going to put in the car? Nick is your guy. And holy crap, does he deliver on the biggest stages. Plus you have all the, uh, the humanity and the personality. I mean, I, I, Look, if I wasn't married, uh, I'd be stalking them. Uh, I'd be trying to put a ring on it. That's what I'm saying. I would hashtag, I would marry Nick Tandy in a heartbeat. Hopefully our out-of-context twist uh, uh, Twitter account proprietor throws that one up here. Well, well, I mean, as, uh, yeah, tragically for you, he's already spoken for. Uh, I, I endorse absolutely every word of that apart from the marriage bit. I'm very happy with Trudy. Um, I, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not the uh, the drugs and alcohol thing we started the show with might be a factor here. But um, quietly, Nick has just built, I mean, since 2016, has just built up this astonishing record of um, overall major endurance race wins. 2015, obviously, the Le Mans 24 hours, that astonishing display at Petit Le Mans in Let's remember, not a car that should have won that race um, with a pretty stacked field of prototypes. Nürburgring, 24 hours. The Spa, 24 hours with a broken car. Um, I don't know if you got the chance to see the end of that race, MP, but the last couple of laps, it was quite staggering. I mean, oh, clearly, so you say I need oil in the transmission in order to drive <laughs> the car? Or it, or indeed a transmission without a hole in the side yeah. punched through by a drive tra- a drive shaft. I mean, the, it, it's he is building up a CV of race wins that, without a doubt, will mark him at the end of his career as one of the all-time greats. It's as simple as that, and he does he does do it with. He's just one of the most well-adjusted guys, and you mentioned the family tragedy. Uh, I'll, I'll mention it because it may well be that some of our, our listeners don't know that um, he lost his other brother, Joe, in a road accident. And to this day, the family team, which Nick uh, took on the reins for uh, and has had great success with, uh, is JTR, Joe Tandy Racing. It bears his, his brother's name. And um, he's still emotional about that. And that, I think, speaks as much about Nick Tandy's character as any other words I can possibly say. I wish him all the success. Uh, he's always a joy to talk to, very open, uh, still adores his motorsports, but he adores other aspects of life as well. And I think that makes him all the better, don't you? I do. He's a cutie pie. Uh, let's see. Where shall I steer us next? There's a question from Right Turn Lover about... Spa 24 regulations, but oh my God, this stuff makes my brain want to fall out of my ear. Um, I'll answer a quick one here from Rob Horn. Has any other team won different races with different GT makes uh, as Roe did in the same season? I don't believe at that level it's ever been done before. Uh, for those that, again, are wondering what the heck we're talking about, that is Rove Racing, who won the Nürburgring 24 hours earlier this year with a BMW M6 GT3 backed by the BMW factory and went on and the aforementioned uh, Nick Tandy together with 
Earl Bamber and Lawrence Vansor. Has there ever been a better three driver squad in a GT car? I think it's a it's a winner. Took the Spa 24 hour race for the same team, but this time in a factory supported Porsche. Uh, I think that's a record destined to be around for a long time. I'm going to answer a question that's been sent in more than once from our pal Vincent1701 in Florida, who asks, how do crews change the brakes and brake rotors without burning their hands and arms? The same way, Vincent, that you might reach into the oven with a large and long forearm covering uh, oven mitt. So there you go. That's the answer to that. Um, Should we move on to fun? I'm, well, let me throw one more here because I don't recall if we have ever read a question from the delightfully named Seamus Cunningham. Uh, That's a great name. Who asks, why is BOP never brought up for the P2 class, Graham Goodwin? It always seems strange to me that BOP is so quickly applied to every other manufacturer class, but not a customer class where it could protect the large investments by P2 cars and teams. And as a point proven here, how many unused non-Areca cars are out there? So, Well, okay. I mean, in terms of numbers, I give a broad idea of that. Uh, we can look at the cars that have been raced but are no longer raced. So the Thunderhead car in Delara is parked at the moment. The Settelar Delara is still in use. Uh, there's an SMP car. My guess is probably somewhere around the half dozen Delara chassis exist that are not currently racing anywhere. It's more than that uh, for the Ligiers. I'm guessing we're close to double figures of raceable cars that exist around there. There is one other factor to take into account, by the way, which is the availability of the Gibson engines. Um, it doesn't you know, if, if you're choosing to go with a Oreca rather than a Ligier, the likelihood is you've got a Ligier sitting there without an engine in the back. But there are a strictly limited number of Gibson GK428 4.2-litre eight-cylinder engines in existence. That number, I think, is still 50. Um, and for that, you've got to have the cars... Uh, racing with their engines, whether or not a team chooses to actually have a spare engine for a major race. And then you've got both the supply chain and indeed the uh, rotation of repair and rebuild that takes place back at Repton in Derbyshire here in the, uh, well, here in the UK. I'm not in the UK, uh, but in the UK. So that's one of the limiting factors. Why haven't they used BOP? I have absolutely no idea. I, I cannot give you a reasonable answer as to why it's allowed it's been allowed to get to where we are i i am not in any way criticizing the level of competition we've got at lmp2 it's awesome i love it love the the european le mans series and there's nothing wrong with it however um we do miss that variety. I know I know from what I read everywhere on the internet and with email questions to myself and with private conversations with fans as well that you miss it too. Quite why that's been allowed to get to that stage, I've absolutely no clue when there's regulations that could have been put in place or changed to change that shameless. So uh, I share your bewilderment, if indeed it is bewilderment. Um, uh, I share the frustrations uh, some fans, it's not a slur on what we've got left in terms of the 
the level of professionalism and racing abilities of the Orica based teams. I just wish we had the variety that was available. Uh, simple as that. Graham Goodwin, we need to move to the last category so yep. we can get you to bed there, Snuggle Bunny. Thanks, Uncle Marshall. Uh, let's go with Stephen Gates says, Hi, Marshall and Graham. Which sports car related rumor have you heard that the time you thought was utterly ludicrous and not a chance of it happening, but ended up being true? Do you want what? to think about that one? Oh, I have it because I've mentioned it oh. uh, before and it'll, it will never stop being <laughs> a thing. Uh, that would be the American Le Mans series uh, selling itself uh to the fine folks at daytona beach so i think i've recounted this one before i'll do it very quickly again we had heard i had heard any of one covering north american motorsports imps in particular i'm sorry uh, sports cars in particular had heard the grand am is going to buy the america lamar series america lamar series is going to buy grand am it, it was an annual thing and mm-hmm. it had been so annual that it was just, uh, yeah, right, whatever, comes up, never, you know, it's all BS. You hear it, and the knee-jerk instant reaction is, that's total BS. Well, this came up yet again, but the question was not asked by a fan or someone on the fringes, uh, as it often was, or stated, I should say. That's all, oh, hey, I heard that, blah, 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 and you go, okay, right, and you judge who's telling you. Well, this time it came from someone who was not on the fringes who was a very powerful and influential person with one of the manufacturers involved in the American Le Mans series. And uh, when he asked, what, hey, what, have you heard anything? And I said, uh, no, as a matter of fact. Uh, but, and repeated what I just told y'all, hear it every year, it's garbage, never put any stock into it. And he said, don't do that. <laughs> do not do that. Uh, I have it on very good authority that there is indeed a sale going down. So, um, and... Proved that out, uh, handed that off to Sports Car 365 founder John DeGeese, who was working under me at Speed uh, for the Baltimore Grand Prix weekend where I was covering IndyCar. He was there to cover ALMS and hand that off to him to chase down. He did an excellent job of doing that and made, I think, what was his one and only appearance, Graham, on Speed's Sunday night motor racing talk show, Wind Tunnel. Um, having been, you know, the person, whether I was the first one to hear about it or not, uh, he was given the story and broke that story. So as he should have full credit was given to him and he appeared on wind tunnel and a little quick, funny sidebar, our Robin Miller, uh, who done IndyCar forever and is a very cantankerous person was, uh, doing his best to calm John down. Uh, because again, it, it, I think anyone would be nervous doing their very first TV interview live uh, from uh, by satellite from Baltimore. And so Robin was trying to calm him down, cheer him up, do all kinds of stuff. And I remember seeing just a little bit. I only saw a couple seconds of it, but I think he did just fine. So that was the one man that I'm like, no, this complete BS. And I'm glad I listened to my friend who said, no, you dumbass. This time it's real because it was. 
there you go. Uh, I'm going to think about that one. Maybe come back with something at a, a future date. Um, what have we got here? Some very nice thoughts from Steve Lawrence, who thanks us for the dedication of putting this together, no matter what time it is, where you are, where I am. Thank you very much indeed, Steve. It is no chore. I do love doing this. Yeah, I have to say. but you're, yeah. not reading, you're not reading the copy correctly, so I'm going to read it. Hey, What's dudes, no question, but I just wanted to thank Graham for staying up so dang late to do last week's show. And that's because (laughs) this is where the appreciation needs to be because it is almost two 30 in the morning right now. So that's why we're shutting this down. Just Uh, yeah. He says, I think it was one 30 AM for him when you got, when you two finished recording the last episode. So you say that we are super dedicated. It is four 25 PM in the afternoon. Steve, my cat Rocky is sleeping face down on the scanner to the left. Rosie's curled up on the right, and the sun's still in the sky. So this guy on the other end of the line, he's uh, super awesome. Uh, Daniel Summerskill, he's back. Well, uh, I think, or is this a different person? Summer Summer Daniels Gill, actually. I got that wrong. Uh, He says, uh, with the U.S. presidential election due here in a couple of days, debate season should be in full swing with uh, which two commentators would be the greatest debaters. He says, hashtag me personally. Who could resist Mark Cole and Chris Parsons debating the intricacies of Bentley blowers for 24 hours? Oh, oh. Okay. Uh, Who would be the two best debaters? Um, the best debater, the best debater in world commentary would be Martin Haven. And Martin, I love you to pieces, but actually trying to get a word at edgeways. At no, with Martin. you've missed the format. It's just Martin debating himself. Yeah. And who, and I, I love the idea that it tw- only 24 hours would be needed. Um, yeah. So, Daniel, uh, I, I've expressed my appreciation for Mark Cole before. Uh, I've expressed my appreciation for Chris Parsons' contributions to the sport before. Uh, my appreciations for Mark Cole have been on the commentary side. My appreciation for the delightful Mr. Parsons and his contributions. I might couch that as pre-commentary contributions. Uh, in your scenario here of pitting Mark versus Chris over 24 hours in Chris's area of expertise, oh, I think we would also need to have a suicide prevention team on watch because I don't know if Mark would last more than an hour or any human being would. So uh, no disrespect to Mr. Parsons, of course, but uh, yes, although I think you all know that was actually a pretty bad lie. Uh, Okay, you know, we're getting down to the very end here. Um, I've got one I want to take. There's a particular reason. It's all yours. It's from Stasis Kokakaranis, who says, who is your favorite Pitlane reporter and why? Um, I'm going to add one immediately, and there's a good reason for doing it. Um, Historically, my favorite was Graham Tyler. I thought Graham was just absolute artist at it. Total eclipse of the heart. (laughs) He was just spot on. Did everything... I wanted a more from a pitlane reporter, did it with real style. Of the current crop, uh, I am a big fan of the style of broadcasting we get from Joe Bradley. Yeah, uh, You'll hear Joe on um, Radio Show Limited's uh, shows across a broad range of sports car uh, racing worldwide. 
Uh, and I particularly want to say this today. Congratulations to Joe and to Sam, his lady, uh, because Joe popped the question last night. What? And, and she said yes after 12 years. Um, God bless you. Uh, so congratulations to Joe Bradley. And I've said this publicly. Deep commiserations to Sam. Um, Joe, you know, Joe knows this. She's way out of the league, way, way out of his league. So he's managed to pull that one off. Um, and Joe, I know, is going to be working really, really, really hard right now to try to get the wedding brought forward whilst we've still got the restrictions. You can only invite 15 guests uh, under lockdown regulations here in the UK. Um, but joking aside, uh, they are just lovely, lovely people. Um, I've got all the time in the world for both of them. And it's just the most fantastic news for our global sports car racing family at what has not been a great time for any or all of us. Thank you for bringing a bit of light into the day right now. And I'm sure everybody listening to the show tonight that's got any recollection of Joe and his work would think that's just the, it's just, I'm delighted. It's just so nice to be able to report nice news, isn't it? It is. So two very quick things. First of all, I'm surprised possibly parliament has made some, some, legal modifications i was unaware that folks over the age of 85 could propose to yeah, one another so that's that's a delightful change also he hasn't managed to get up off his knee by the way he oh didn't no he's still up. down there huh they just yeah. brought him a pillow and a blanket he's not getting back yeah. up um fine. hopefully sam will be fine uh we can maybe spray paint things gold but uh I, I assume he proposed with a ring made out of cable ties and fender washers. So uh, that would be a very Joe Bradley thing. Uh, absolutely well spotted on Joe if we're talking international. He has always described what he does in, in fan terms, like a fan who's been let loose in uh, pit lane or in the paddock or wherever it might be. And He's never lost that, which I think is valuable because the super slick, highly produced, and hey, here you go. And No one remembers those people because they're garbage and they don't connect with anything real. So Joe connects instantly, and he has the racing experience and mechanical knowledge to do the thing that, honestly, very few commentators are capable of doing in any sport, not just sports cars, mm. and that is tell you what's happening through experience and a lack of guessing. Aha, I see that they are looking to replace this brake component, which means one of two mm -hmm. things happened. And it's not having to go ask somebody. It's being able to look or touch, you know, feel the, the fluid on the ground and smell it and tell you exactly what it is. And not just what it is, but how it smells and how that smell points towards something that has happened. Uh, Joe has the ability to bring you into an strictly an audio-based uh, format and make you feel as if you are free to lift the uh, little rope on the barrier, walk through into the garage, and give a direct account as if he's standing right over the mechanics, working on whatever or doing the thing, um, and make you feel like you're right there. And, and so spectacular at his job and i mean i just light up every time i see him 
um, mm-hmm. mainly because it's kind of that, hey, when you see the village idiot, you kind of smile. But, you know, putting aside, <laughs> it's just the loveliest guy. So uh, I got all the time in the world. Super, super I'll throw in here on the U.S. side. Granted, he's uh, from your lovely isle, Justin Bell. I mean, you're not going to have more fun than Justin Bell on pit lane. But in terms of the pros, pro, uh, Jamie Howe, she is, Mm -hmm. I've said this before, she is, if you want to learn a lot in a very short amount of time and know that she is out there hustling to get super in-depth items and to lend a ton to the broadcast, Jamie Howe over here, wow. Whenever I know that she is on pit lane, uh, I feel as if like we are just going to school. So uh, plus she's pretty darn good, and her husband not so bad uh, as a race car driver, champion guy, Brian Sellers. So there you go. Um, one or two more, and then we got to go. And I apologize, James Counter and John Wojnar and a few others. Send your stuff back in if you want us to get to them. But we got to get this lad here to bed. Uh, our pal Andrew Baca. <laughs> this is why we love Andrew and why he's part of the show. Proposed name for the grandfathered Alpine LMP1, Rebellion, A113. So I love that. It is a re-badged Rebellion. Um, and we'll just close here, if you're in agreement, uh, with a second one from Andrew. We don't get to hear from Andrew as often as we like. He's probably a normal, well-adjusted human being, but fully understood. Last week, Acura put out a press release celebrating uh, their Partial petite winners, part petite winners, including Scott Tucker. This reminded some of us. Past petite winners. Past? Well, I see. Okay. Uh, It says part, but we'll go with past. Yes. Uh, They're past petite winners, including Scott Tucker. This reminded some of us clearly. Not a real sponsor. Uh, Microsoft Office logos on the car. What's your favorite example, Graham, of a totally not a sponsor logo on a race car? Hmm. Yeah, that Microsoft Office one, not well known, by the way, that um, that used to have on the dashboard, uh, particularly when Fran Montani uh, was in the car. Clippy? Or indeed. Oh, yeah, it, Clippy used to come up and say, do you want to crash into the GT car next to you right now? <laughs> <laughs> and also, do you want to deploy the hammer when Bushu would plug yeah. in his helmet ID and it would know automatically? Chop with some help with that. I think yeah. uh, you could say yes or no. Well, a, a mock sponsor. Oh, there's been plenty of them. Um, totally not a real sponsor. It's a good one. You know, oh, if I had read this question half an hour ago, which I didn't. Can you come up with anything for this one, MP? Yeah, and it's not – granted, it was just a tongue-in-cheek thing, and it happened to be – granted, he was – I think best known as a sports car driver, but in his uh, formative junior open wheel days, um, Jeff Krosnoff. Um, I guess there was some sort of inside joke about how at uh, this mid-tier junior open wheel training level, he was able to, uh, to fund things. And uh, granted, his father was fairly successful in business, so that's where the money came from to do this. Uh, But they ended up putting on the side of his car, I think, to the consternation of his father. I I seem to recall his father, who was a very straight-laced person. Um, They, the, the father unit was not impressed with, I believe it was Underworld Crime Syndicate, 
is what he put uh, on the side of the car, right? And it's just so, you know, ballsy and tongue-in-cheek that you can't take it seriously, but it was still just uh, so darn awesome that you had to say, okay, that's, uh, that is pretty darn awesome. Um, I mean, if we're talking... Wasn't there... Wasn't there um... Was it um, Ferrucci Santini was going to put Trump 2020? I mean, come on. Yeah, Ferrucci Santini. That's a great name for him as well. Or Santino Ferrucci, whichever one you prefer. Um, he, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, underworld like, cover-up is what, it, I'm sorry, it was underworld cover-up that he used. Right. I'm looking at the side of the car right now. Um, gosh, what was the one? Oh, well, I, uh, these were real-ish things, but not really. Uh, if we look back to the good old marijuana oh, no, hazy I've days. I've just remembered one. Okay. I've just remembered one. This is a real world, not a sponsor. Totally forgot this. Um, it is Brick Laddie Racing back in the day at Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, so this was Tim Greaves, who was a co- at, at one of the um, owners of Radical Race Cars and the Radical SR9 LMP2 car. So this would have been about 2009. Uh, at his own race team with uh, Radical SR9, um, was also the owner of a uh, malt whiskey distillery, Brickladdy. Yep. Um, and Brickladdy Racing. Ben Devlin. Uh, uh, trying to think who else drove that car. It was a Radical uh, SR9. Uh, Stuart, 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 Mosley, Stuart Mosley drove the car as well. Okay. Uh, who's actually, uh, so Stuart nowadays is the team manager of Nielsen Racing's Michelin Le Mans Cup. Yeah. Um, co-manager of their, their European Le Mans series. But uh, Le Mans 24 Hours, the car advertised Brooke Laddie Springwater. Because, well, Brooke Laddie don't make a spring water. Let's be very clear on this. Uh, but because you're not allowed to advertise alcoholic beverages uh, in France. So Brooke Laddie spring water, it most certainly was. There is no Brooke Laddie spring water. The only thing that Brooke Laddie make is a single, a very nice, by the way, single malt scotch. And uh, there you go. A real world bullshit sponsor all over the car uh, for the Le Mans 24 hours. That just sounds like a marketing failure, Graham. Single malt water. <laughs> Single and malt water. see if uh, anyone wants to actually test that. Well, I'll just throw in here, and I might have mentioned this before. You might have mentioned that story before, and then I mentioned this in reaction to it. Those who really pay <laughs> attention to this garbage we spew might remember. Uh, Indy Lights driver that I worked with in 1996, Mark Hotchkiss, uh, his father and brother were longtime uh, IMSA GTP participants in the Purple Winds sponsored Porsche 962 that some might remember. Uh, Mark, uh, parents, very wealthy, very successful, were able to fund their son's explorations into hopefully becoming an IndyCar driver. Uh, he had a new sponsor. Uh, I think it was 94, 95, 96. Uh, Fountainhead Water. Ooh. I've never seen a damn bottle in my life, nor had anybody. Uh, there were never any bottles of this water. And so we kept just ribbing him constantly <laughs> like, come on, man. We well, may as well just put thanks, dad, on the side of the car because that would be more accurate than this garbage you're trying to pass off. He's like, no, it's a real thing. I swear it's a real company. And then he mentioned some, I think, well, today here in the States, Whole Foods is known as uh, a fairly popular and somewhat easy to find high end uh, yep. grocery store. Back then, it was 
crazy rare, you know, seemingly there was one on the planet. He, you know, I remember him saying, well, if you go to Whole Foods, you'll find it there. And I'm like, nobody goes to Whole Foods. So, you know, that's a great, oh, it's a great diversion. Sure. Yeah. If you go to the place where none of them exist and no one shops, you can find it there. I said, just admit it. And so, oh, so he produced, I forget what it was, like a case of Fountainhead water uh, somewhere halfway through towards the end of the season. And I'm like, oh, look at that. I said, would you just be honest and tell us that this was your dad in the backyard with a garden hose filling up a 12 bottles of water and, and printing up some labels, slapping some labels on them just to give his, his freeloading son some credibility that his whole career isn't just facilitated by a rich dad. And uh, Mark, who had a great sense of humor, was like, ah, you got me. That's exactly what it was. It was my dad with a garden hose filling it up. Damn it, you caught me. But anyways, I do believe it was maybe a real thing. I'm sure it was some sort of family friend or buddy or whatever. Um, uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I still have not seen an actual bottle in a store ever, nor do I know if it ever really existed. So, and at, at no point during that answer did we mention rich energy, and we're not going to. Um, so there you go. Uh, I think that's us done for the week, isn't it, my friend? You are taking us home, and I really hope taking yourself to bed. I certainly am. Um, well, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Marshall, for making the time, and good to hear you're back on your feet, buddy. Uh, but before we get into the goodbyes, it's going to be a thank you to, as always, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, to uh, TorontoMotorsport.com, and to Bell Helmet, Bell Racing Helmets USA. I have been Graham Goodwin here in Portimao. You have been Marshall Pruitt over there in California. This has been the Week in Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We will be with you next week. <laughs>